0: Thank you. Well, good, morning. Good, morning. good morning. Glad to see everybody today. My name is Philip Brand. I'm the pastor here, and this is Tim. He was leading worship for us this morning, did a great job. So uh, if you're visiting with us, I'm glad you're here. And if you're not visiting with us, I'm tickled that you're here. So, you know, <clears throat> it, there is that. Um, hey, how are you? Good. You're just connected? I'm having trouble with technology. You're having trouble with technology today. are, yeah. yeah. But you can stay up here with me if you want to pull up a chair. You can help me with the sermon. I might need to. Yeah, you can do that. That's fine. I mean, we've we've got another one of these seats. It's in the old building if you want to go get it. and Yeah, come on up. Yeah, why don't you go wipe that off and then... <clears throat> Some things are nasty, Tibbs. Some <laughs> things are nasty. Yeah. Did you hear what he said? He said he's sweating like a pig. That's the way he said. I've never seen a pig sweat. So what happened to the lights? Yeah, he did. So do the sermon one all the way up. It says ser- all the way. Yeah, now I can see you. This is great. This is awesome. So see, you stayed up here too long. It's what happened. they it just... That's exactly right. All right, we're in a series called uh, Recalculating, and this is the third one in that series. And I want to start with this picture right here. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Yeah, as a (laughs) Planet Fitness, I've held on to that picture. I've had that picture for probably nine years, just waiting for the moment I could actually use it. Yeah, so there you go, Planet Fitness, and it fits today. It absolutely fits today. So, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, and um, I want to give you some background to this one, just to get, uh, if you haven't been here, caught up, and then to remind some of us of, of what we talked about. But we need this background in order to talk about Genesis 14. Um, First one, Abraham's brother Haran has passed away. Now, if we look at a map, this is kind of the time period it happened. Um, Terah, who is Abraham's father, Haran and Abraham and his other brother, which I can't remember his name right now, uh, went from Ur all the way up to Haran up there. So there's a place called Haran and then a brother called Haran. And Abraham's brother, Haran, died in Haran. So they buried him in Haran, is where they buried him. And he is now passed away. Lot is Haran's son. So it is Abraham's uh, nephew. And it seems that Abraham took over the father- fatherly Um, guidance of Lot during that time. He adopted him, so to speak. He didn't call him his son, always his nephew, but he became the father figure in Lot's life. And so Abraham is investing uh, in Lot and telling him how to run the business, how how he can control the estate that he has, and and giving him some guidance there. So Abram and Lot have that kind of father-son relationship, even though he is his nephew. That's what's That's what's happening. So uh, Abraham and Lot and both of those estates left Haran, went down to the promised land. There was a famine. And so they went down to Egypt. So Lot went with uh, Abraham down to Egypt and then they got kicked out of Egypt. They got kicked out of Egypt because Abram lied about Sarah, his wife. And so they both were kicked out of of Egypt can't go back, and so now they're living in in the Promised Land again. In chapter thirteen, which is the one right before this one, uh, they have um, a conflict, and the conflict is between the people that work for them. It seems that they are arguing over places to feed the cattle, like where can we we want to feed our sheep here? No, we we called it first, and they're arguing over like wells and things like that. So the land has created tension because Lot's group has grown very large and Abraham's group is already very large and it doesn't seem like the land can contain them. And so because they couldn't work out the differences and the strife within the family, Abram takes Lot and he says, look, here's all the land. If you want to go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right so Lot says that he's going to go right because he likes the way that the the land over here looks. It's plush. It's green. It's in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a river. It's kind of like Egypt, like where we spent some time with. and, And I just think I'll be more prosperous here. So Lot takes that direction. And Abram, being the man that he is, goes in the other direction. And it solves at least the family tension, the family argument by splitting. Have you ever had a moment where you had family members where it was just good if y'all just parted ways for a little while? Ever had that happen? Yeah. Right? Cause you argued. Listen, a lot of us has had that, and it's good for, you know, this particular group of our family to be livid away from us, right? And we live away from them, and then we just meet from from time to time. It, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, there's trouble and you need you need to split. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter four, 14, actually, chapter 14. Now, I am in no way going to read through the first um, 10 verses of that. i just not going to do it. And we're going to start with verse 10. There's a lot of names in there, and I would butcher the Hebrew language when I, when I did this, but let's just set it up this way, okay? Here's a map, <clears throat> another map. And uh, there is a A group of kings that have gotten together, and actually one one king has conquered the other ones, but that's a story for another time. And there's four kings over here in the land of Ur, and you can see them in red, okay? Four kings there. Over here in the promised land, there are five kings in green. Now, they're kings of cities, so it's not a king of like a nation, it's a king of a city. It's like a mayor, a mayor, so to speak but a mayor with an army. So that's where it becomes a little bit different. <clears throat> but they're, they're governing this. And uh, there's a guy named Shalemender, and I know his last name does not have a D in it, but we're going to call him Shalemender today, just be- because. And over here, he rules all nine of these cities. I mean, they, they are paying tribute to him. Well, something has happened. These five kings in <clears throat> Canaan land, They have rebelled and they are no longer sending tribute to Shalamander. They're not sending tribute to him. And so what's happened is he's got his group of people here, and they've traveled up north to Haran, and they are attacking everybody along the way. Because what they are doing is they are trying to get down to Sodom and Gomorrah and battle them. And when that battle is over, they want to make sure that when they take the plunder back, there's nobody that's going to attack them. Do you see the strategy? So they're, they're attacking everybody on the way up and now they're attacking everybody on the way down and they meet with Sodom and Gomorrah and those five kings. So these four kings and these five kings and all their armies are like now battling each other and Sodom and Gomorrah loses the battle. In fact, they lose it badly. And so these four kings over here plunder these five kings and they're on their way back home. And they know they've already conquered everybody. So their guard is down and they think they're home free and they're just just rejoicing in all their plunder because they've already beat everybody. And that brings us to chapter 14, verse 10. And here we go. It says this. Now, the valley of Asidim was full of uh, tar pits. Uh, and you know, they're tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So they're, they're defeated. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they're on their way back home. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Now, that's very significant. He is not dwelling outside in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is dwelling in the city of Sodom. Now, get, this gives us a clue as to what has happened. Lot moved his big business down into that valley, and over a period of time, he either lost it, sold it, or something, and is now moved into the city. He has money, but he doesn't have quite the presence that he used to have. He's a lot smaller than he used to be, okay? I don't know if Abram and Lot talked about this, But I know that Abram definitely gave him some guide points on how to run a business and stuff like that. But for some reason, Lot has made it there and he has moved in to Sodom. And Abram probably isn't that thrilled with it. He still loves Lot, but he knows about that city. He knows the city is evil. He knows it's a place that someone should not live in. He knows that there's forces there that could drag righteous lot, off track. And so Abram is concerned about him. I'm sure that he's concerned about him and doesn't like the fact that he's living in Sodom. And and so he is in Sodom, the, the text says, in the actual city. All his outside living is done. He's no longer in a tent. So he gets captured, okay? All his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped "...came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre." By the way, that's the first time that they are called Hebrews in Scripture. Uh, Abram is referenced as a Hebrew. Uh, "...living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anner; These were the allies of Abraham. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in and pursued as far as Dan. So Abram, who doesn't really agree with how Lot is living with his family, has heard that Lot has been captured. And as soon as he hears that he's captured, Abram says, I'm going to get him. You're not going to take my kinsfolk." is what Abram says. Have you ever had a family member that's just not living the way that you want them to live? Have you? They're living in an area they're not supposed to live in, and you can see the pull on their family. You can see how it's, it's not really good for them at all. And so you've had to part ways, right? And you probably have feelings about that family member. Are those family members? Some of your feelings are not positive. That's okay, it's not positive. Still your family members, but you're not not for the way that they are living right now. You're just not for them. Abram is in the same exact type of position. He hears about Lot and he says, I'm going to go get him. We haven't talked in a little while. He hasn't been at family gatherings in a little while but he's my blood kin and he's in a crisis and I need to go save him and his family. And immediately he drops everything and goes after them. Because sometimes, sometimes when your family member is in a crisis and they need help, people of faith stand and say, I don't agree with the way that they're living, but I'm still gonna help them out in the crisis. I don't agree with them with what is going on currently in their life. I don't agree with where they have been living. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop right now and I'm going to help them with that crisis. I've done a lot of funerals, more than, than I, I really can count at this particular point. And in most of those funerals, I'm around the family at the very end. And this is a phrase that most of them says. Like if I was to list top 10 phrases that families say at a funeral, this would be in the top five at least. And it's this one. You know, we only get together when there's a funeral. You ever hear that? We only get together when there's a funeral. Now, there's some good reasons why you don't get together as a funeral. You know, you love them. You'd like to see them more. There's not a conflict. But sometimes when that's said, it's like, I'm really, I'm really glad we don't get together except for a funeral, you know. But when a family member passes away, you put aside everything that has happened in the family and you go to the funeral, you, you put aside all the disagreements and you go to the funeral because that's a moment of crisis and that's a moment where your family needs your support. In going to the funeral, you are not saying that their lifestyle is something you approve of now. What you are saying is, I still love you. This is a crisis. And this, it sees far beyond any moral um, conflict that we currently have. So you go to the funeral. You go and help people when they are in crisis. You might even bring food. You might even put a flower because you're recognizing that your family member has lost someone close to them. You have also lost somebody close to you, and you want to honor them by going to the funeral. You respond, and you go in a crisis. See, we all have family members that we have parted ways uh, for certain things, and we don't have them over to the house. We we try to kind of get around all of that. But when they are in crisis, when they go into a hospital, we pray for them. When something happens in their life, we pray for them and we try to help them out as much as possible. This is what Abram does. He drops everything and goes after Lot. And it's at a high personal cost to Abram. You see, Abram could lose his life by going after five armies from the land of Ur. He could lose his life. He has 318 people that are going with him that will follow him into battle. And he's responsible for their lives as well. He, there is a great cost to him going after Lot. And sometimes to help a family member in trouble, it comes at a great cost to us. But it's worth The cost, we are supposed to help family members in crises. Friends are up for grabs, okay? Enemies are up for grabs, but family, we are supposed to help, and that's what a faithful person does. But what about the family members that you like? Hopefully, there are more of those than there are of the other side that you don't like. If there are more family members that you don't like than you like, you might be the problem. <laughs> okay? You might be the problem. All right? But there should be <clears throat> family members that, that you like, and what do you do for them? Well, you do the same thing. We are called to stand up and stand beside our family members and put our family members as a value of who we we stand with and we support. In uh, Nehemiah chapter four, verse 14, it says this, "'And I looked and arose and said to the nobles "'and to the officials and to the rest of the people, "'Do not be afraid of them. "'Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, "'and fight for your brothers, fight for your brothers, "'fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. Now this is in the context of war, people pulling out swords and, and going after an enemy. But an application to this could be for us today is there's some family members that need to stand for other family members right now in our society. For instance, I think parents that are Christians should be involved in the school system. I think they should be involved. I think you should go and you should stand for what is being taught to your child in your school. If you hear of something that isn't correct, that isn't supposed to be taught, you need to go to the school board and you need to stand for those biblical principles. It is your responsibility to make sure that your child isn't held captive by the enemy in a school system that's teaching them something that they shouldn't be learning. Here's my... Here's where I'll land on all this school stuff, okay? Do not teach children philosophies. Do not teach them anything that is a belief-oriented. Teach them arithmetic. Teach them science. Teach them health. Teach them history. Teach them the subjects and leave all this other stuff out of the school system. They need to know how to balance a check. I know it's online. But they need to know how to work a checkbook, how to work finances, how to do practical things. They don't need to learn all this other stuff. They don't need to be indoctrinated. They just need to be taught the basics. That is what the school system is about. And you, as a parent, need to stand for your child in that school system. The teachers need you to do this. I hear people say a lot that the Christian teachers should be the ones that stand in the schools. Yes, they should, but it's a little more difficult for them to do that. They have a job, and there's some requirements, and there's some things that they have to do that maybe they don't agree with. They are just in a tight pickle. You as a parent going and talking about it and getting that stuff that they shouldn't be doing out and off of their desks so that they can focus on the stuff that they learned in college to teach the kids that actually benefit the children. You doing that helps them be able to do their job and currently they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They're doing a lot of work that they shouldn't have to do. They need to focus on kids and focus on teaching them. We are at war for the souls of the children in our school systems yeah. we're at war and you stand and you go and you stand for what is right see that really shouldn't be taught but we're good with history right even if we don't like it we're good with science we're good with all of that but quit doing that um we cannot for instance go to currently and I don't necessarily not agree with this so don't don't throw it at me. We cannot go in and teach biblical stuff in school because it's religion, right? I'm, I'm fine with that. I am. I'm fine with that. But if we're going to have that rule, don't teach political religion in our school system. Don't teach this other stuff in our school system. Have it fair. Just do the basics and be done with it. And parents need to stand and go after their children so that their children aren't taken captive by stuff that they shouldn't hear. You also need to, you also need to stand up in your community. You stand up in your community. There are biblical things that we believe that we just need to stand up for. And we stand up for them so that people in our community are not taken captive by stuff that they shouldn't be taken captive by. And in that regard, I'm, I'm really speaking of family members and, and things of that nature. So, but we stand in our community. The other place that we stand, I know I kind of did that one really fast, but I want to get to this one, is the other place that we stand is we stand at home and we do battle at home. If you are not doing battle at home, don't do battle out there. Do battle at home first and then do your battles in the community and in the systems that you need to do battle in. Here's where this comes from. It comes from Proverbs. It says, hear my son and accept my words. So here's a dad that is teaching his son the right way to go. And it set my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass it on. That is what we are supposed to do. And then it's up to the kids whether or not they go towards Sodom and Gomorrah or whether they continue to follow the biblical instruction that you gave them. But you have done your job in that moment. So we stand even in the home. And even if they ignore it, at least you did your part. Least you taught them what they should know. Um, yeah, taught them what you should know. So let's go to the next point, verse 14. <clears throat> this is what it says. Doo, doo, doo. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Now, that's a very significant uh, piece of information, 318 men. Uh, These are not slaves. The particular thing born in his house means that these are families that have found out who Abram was and decided to follow Abram wherever he went. So wherever he pitched his tent, these people followed Abram. I'm not sure how the community worked. I'm sure there had something to do with you had to do this much work or whatever. They had some type of system. But these are free people that chose to follow Abram wherever he went. So these 318 people did not have to go with Abram on this journey to battle these five kings. That's leadership, isn't it? It's leadership. When this many people decide to risk their life for what the leader is leading them to do, and 318 of them, and went and pursued pursued as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. It's about in the Dan area. So he defeated them. Now, put this into perspective. Uh, There are five kings, and there's thousands of people in their army that they brought with them. Here's 318 people and they go up against thousands and they defeat them. So Abram had like the Navy SEALs. I mean, these guys were good. You don't want to mess with them. 318 against thousands. These guys were awesome. I mean, it wasn't somebody like me going with Abram, right? Right? Like there are people in this room that have served in the military and I would say y'all would be a part of the 318, but not me, I'm not trained. I go to the range, that's nothing. Do do you know what I'm saying? That's nothing, that's not like these trained guys and they go in and they battle and they split up. Do you remember the story of Gideon and Judges and how he had 300 people and he split them up? Yeah, I wonder where he got that idea. Father Abraham, yeah, 318 people, we're gonna split up, we're gonna divide and we're gonna conquer. Well, it worked for Abraham, I guess I'm gonna do it too. So he splits up the 300 people. Always wondered where he got that from. It must be from, you know, his history here. So, so yeah, so he, he splits up and, and he takes them over and he gets all of the possessions. He actually wins. So here's the point, here's the point and I move on real fast from this one, but if you're gonna stand for your family, have a plan. Don't go into battle without a plan. You might be very emotional about it and you get into it. But if you're very emotional and you don't have a plan, you're going to cause more damage than if you just think a few moments and figure out a wise way to handle the particular situation that you're about to jump into. So have a plan. Abram had a plan. He had a plan for his limited resources to go after these people and actually overcome come them. So he, he had a plan. So he defeated them. He brought back all, verse 16, the possessions, and he brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Shalemender, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom, the king of Sodom, whose name is Berea, by the way, went out to meet him at the valley of Shevi. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most high God. If you have a victory in your life, you are always met with these two kings. These two kings will come out and meet you. Sodom, Berea, represents the flesh and the world and how you would look at your victory from that particular regard. Melchizedek, is the king of Salem and he's a priest of the most high God. By the way, just a little note. It is okay for people that are voted into office to live their faith while they're in office, act like they are people of faith while they're in office and say things of faith while they are in office. It is okay for them to do that. Separation of church and state just means that the government cannot create a national religion. That's what it means. But when you're voted in somewhere, you are required by God to make decisions according to your faith. Everybody else does. Just might not be the Bible's faith. Might be their faith over here, but everybody else has a moral center and that's how they make decisions. You should do that as well. And so here is the king of Salem. He represents a godly king, a king that believes in Jehovah. And he comes out to Abram after Abram has this great victory. And when he comes out, he brings some things with him. First, he brings bread and wine. It's a celebration. For Melchizedek, looking at Abram, and they must have had some type of relationship Melchizedek is saying, man, Abram, 318 people, God gave him that victory. We're going to celebrate God and him giving the victory to Abraham. God gave Abraham something significant, and we're going to celebrate it. So I'm bringing bread and wine. That's what I'm bringing. And in verse 19, he blessed him. He said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he blesses him. He comes out, man, Abram, you know God gave you this victory. Let's celebrate that. Briah, Sodom, on the other hand, doesn't come out with any of that. He thinks that Abram, because of his strength and because of who Abram is, is the one that actually won the battle. God is not a part of anything that Sodom comes. In fact, Briah, uh, the king of Sodom, doesn't even bring a gift to Abraham for rescuing his own people. Roll that around in your head a minute. Doesn't even bring a gift out there. Find that out in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's pretty generous. You know, just give me the persons, you can have all the goods. Uh uh-uh. uh. Um, Abram just whooped the people that whooped him. He's not about to ask for those possessions, right? He's not about to do that. So he comes out with a political compromise that he has no power to make. Abram could have kept it all. That was how it went in those days. You conquered, you got to keep them. You got to keep all the people, all the stuff, everything. You got to keep it all. But Sodom, he comes out and he's looking at this from a worldly type of perspective. Just give me the people you can have The stuff. And in verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. In other words, when Abram went on this journey, he said, I think I'm going to win. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm going to win. And Lord, this is my commitment to you. Uh, I'm not going to keep anything that I get. I'm going to give it all back. And I'm going to make sure people know that you're the one that gave me this victory. And so he made a predetermined decision before his victory how he was going to act when he got the victory. You and I need to make some predetermined decisions about how we're going to act when we have victory. Philip, why? Because we're going to celebrate. It's going to be great. And we're going to point to Jesus. Jesus. Well, you need to make that decision now because when victory happens and you have all the loot that comes with victory, that loot is very tempting, very tempting to focus on. This is what I have. I've really made myself now. I'm really solid because I have all this stuff because I have victory. Before you have victory, before you have success, you have to determine in your mind how you're going to handle that success. And Abram says, the way I'm going to handle success is when it comes my way, is I'm going to point back to the God that gave it to me. Because when I get the victory, two kings are going to come my way. It's going to be a king that's godly, and it's going to be the king of my flesh, and they're going to war with each other. And when I have victory, I'm going to be like, oh, man, I'm really something. I'm really, I'm really a bag of barbecue potato chips. I am all that right? And, and wow, well, look at what I did with such few people. I mean, that, that would have been very easy for Abram. But Abram decided not to do that. He decided to point to God because he knew that the two kings were going to come at him. And at that point, he was going to have to have a choice. Who am I going to point to that really gave me the victory? Okay? Who am I really going to point to? So, verse 20 at the very end has something that is extremely insightful. And Abraham gave him, as Melchizedek from Salem, a tenth of everything. Let me remind you, real quick, that Salem wasn't defeated by the four kings that came from her, wasn't defeated. There was nothing that Abram brought back that was theirs. Nothing at all. But Abram knew that this was a representative of God, the priest of the Most High God, had been to him several times, and this is the person that he gave tithes to. He gave tithes to. In giving the tithe, he was telling the king of Sodom, That it is not the flesh that has made me great. It is God who has made me great. That is what he was telling them. Now, before I make this next statement, I want you to know something. I have no idea who gives and who doesn't give in this church. I, I don't know. I just don't know. There is an exception where someone might say, we sold something, we have this amount of money, is there a special need in the church? I work with that person, we do the special need, and then it's over. I don't know anything beyond that, okay? Those special occasions. So I don't know who gives and who doesn't give. But here's, here's the lesson that I wanna give you from this particular passage. Tithing is acknowledging that God has done something for you. The lack of tithing is acknowledging he hasn't. I'm gonna say that again tithing acknowledges that god has done something for you the lack of tithing acknowledges that he hasn't tithing says that god has made me everything that i am today god has given me what i need to put on my table to provide for my family Tithing says that I recognize that my house, my car, and everything that I have that is tangible in this life is a blessing directly from God. He is the one that has made me. And every time I give a tithe of what he has given me, I am acknowledging and saying, Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for making me who I am. Thank you for everything that I have. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And every time someone doesn't tithe, What they are saying is this, God had nothing to do with supplying my needs today. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, the person I work for, my boss, has made me all that I am. My boss gives me a check, and that way I can can provide for the needs of my family. It is my boss that does that. And um, I I do taxes because they twist my arm to do taxes. They make me do taxes, but at least I have roads and at least I have some stuff like that, you know. So I'm giving to the government, but at the same time, you know, the taxes over here, it's from my boss and my boss is who made me. Further than that is, I'm the one who has made me. It is my good work for my boss that causes him to give me a raise. And so I am a self-made individual, And it's at that point that you begin to think like that, that you begin not to tithe, that you begin to say, "Uh, God didn't make me this over here. A lack of tithing is saying that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Tithing is saying thanks to God for making you who you are. And you recognize that. The lack of it says God hasn't had anything to do with anything that I have. Okay, I tithe. That hurts me. It hurts me. It's very motivational, actually, to me. To think that if I, in, in not tithing, I'm saying that God has nothing to do with my life. And everybody in this room knows that you are here today not because of what you have done but because god has done something for you and he has provided for you in such a way that you could sit here this morning and worship in this facility that you could supply your needs during the week for your family that you have clothes on your back right you all know this but do you acknowledge it? Or are you telling somebody God something different? God, I really don't need you. And that's what the lack of tithing actually tells to the God that has provided everything for you. Wow. Wow. So when we keep what we make from people, we work for and don't give to God, we are saying to. We're saying to to God that it's the people we work for that is the most powerful people in our life, not God. They're the ones making us, not God. And Abraham said, I am absolutely not going to do that. So Abram made a predetermined decision before taxes. Oh come on, that was funny. Have you ever had that uh, conversation? Okay, I'm not going to go there because I'm going to stay right here in the lane. Stay in the lane. Yeah, he made a predetermined decision. I'm going to give ten percent of all this to God. That way, that everybody around me around me knows. First of all, the king of Sodom isn't going to make me rich. God is. The king of Sodom isn't going to bless me. God's going to bless me. So when I give this gift. To the king of Salem, the king of Sodom knows where the power really is. The sad thing about this is the king of Sodom didn't have the wherewithal to really think this through because eventually he's going to be destroyed. He'll be destroyed. But anyway, there you go. So he made up his mind. Um, I'll end with this. You remember the, the Planet Fitness picture at the very beginning? You, you remember that with the McDonald's on there? Did you know a few years ago, I didn't know this until this morning, actually. Somebody told me this in the first service, um, well, before the first service. Did you know that you used to be able to get a, um, like, sign up for Planet Fitness, and they would give you a free pizza? <laughs> what? What is going on with that, right? Listen, every good decision that you make will always come with the temptation to do something wrong. Don't go with that temptation. Always go with the king that is pointing you to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stage you've given us. Thank you for this historical lesson this morning. And I, again, don't know how you worked. Um, So, I'm going to ask. There's people that are struggling with family. I pray that you give them wisdom during their struggles. I pray that you will give them the wisdom to understand when there's a crisis they should help with and one that they shouldn't when they should get involved and when they should not get involved. I pray that as they uh, are determined to be people of faith and do what's right, I pray that you show them what is right in everything that comes their way concerning their family. I ask that you be with the people in the room that may have never tithed in their entire life. pray that in this moment that they work that through in their minds. I don't know in what way, but Father, we will just leave that to the Holy Spirit. I pray for the people in the room that's tithed for a long period of time and they've slacked off a little bit. I pray, Father, that they will start giving back to you. Because it's not, Father, to give the church money, give people money, make something else rich. It's not about that. It's about an acknowledgement that you have supplied all our needs. And we want to thank you for that. We want to acknowledge that. We want to point to you as the God that has made us who we are today. So, Father, we love you. And be with us during this worship time and move as you see fit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. The altar is open and I'm here to pray for you as well.